Welcome back, U.S. History. So, we left off with the kind of anger of America leading up to the Revolutionary War. So, that's where we are now, the Revolutionary War. So, America, we were all upset about all this kind of stuff, and this kind of all led us to the First Continental Congress, and this was held in Philadelphia, born and raised on the playground. I spent most of my days chilling out, maxing, relaxing, all cool and all, shooting some b-ball outside of school. A couple of guys were up to no good. All right, yeah, I'm going to stop, because you guys probably don't even know Fresh Prince of Bel-Air. Anyhow, um, where they did not make laws um, at this Philadelphia meeting, but rather they discussed their grievances and basically trying to figure out what's going on. So they got together and like, all right, we're not happy. What do we do moving forward? Like, what are we going to do next? So the Continental Congress expressed loyalty to the crown. So they were like, hey, we're still British, but we have rights. And it's the same rights as the British subjects. So we're not just kind of lesser citizens because we're here in America. So they felt that they had the right to free and exclusive power of legislation in their several provincial legislatures. Basically, we can make our own decisions, our own laws. And to back up this feeling, um, or their back up this belief, they called for a ban on all trade with Great Britain, just to show them that they were serious. All right. Now, building on this idea for independence here, because we're we're kind of getting there more and more here, the colonists believed that the British government had basically violated their rights as British subjects, which we kind of already discussed here. So, some of their fellow colonists had already died defending these rights. So, January 1776, Thomas Paine's pamphlet, Common Sense, stirred up public support for the revolution and called for an end to British rule of the colonies in general. And Thomas Paine argued... Quote, government, even in its best state, is but a necessary evil. In its worst state, an intolerable one. So look, we might not like government, but we do need government. And when government's really bad, it's an intolerable one. Apparently, they felt the British government was intolerable. So we wrote up and signed, signed the Declaration of Independence July 4th, 1776. All right, so... In May of 1776, the Second Continental Congress began urging the colonies to draft new constitutions to replace the British royal charters. So from 1776 to 1780, all had made new or revised their royal ones, or their original ones. So, now I'm not going to go too much in the Revolutionary War. Hopefully this is something you already got in middle school. So we're kind of going to not cover that too much and just talk about how we are going to go about drafting this new constitution and everything. So with our new country, we needed to use the ideas of enlightenment. So this is kind of going back to that very beginning that we talked about. So John Locke and his natural rights, life, liberty, and property. Well, we had the American ones, life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. And use, we use these ideas when we outline the power of the government or maybe what the government could not take away from us, life, liberty, property. So then the Virginia Statute of for Religious Freedom in 1779, um, that kind of was outlined by how the philosophers felt about religion, where they kind of wanted a religion out of government or a separation of church and state, if you will. And 
So they stated that human the human mind was created free and that the government control over religious beliefs or worship was tyrannical. So don't do it. Another quote for, from James Madison here. Religion must be left to the conviction and conscience of every man. And by 1883, every state had forbidden the establishment of official state churches supported by tax dollars. Now let's get back to another subject here, women, and we're going to talk about the kind of role that women had in this new country. And now they, women were not granted full citizenship. Most men and women at the time opposed women's participation in politics. And we'll kind of talk about how that changes, not until the 1920s, but we'll get there. All right, foreshadowing. Anyhow, but we do see this thing called Republican motherhood. And here's your textbook definition. This Republican motherhood proposed that American women could influence politics and society through their work in the home. They would offer moral guidance to their husbands and educate their children in the principles of liberty, democratic values, and civic responsibility. Women could instruct young American men to be good citizens and thereby ensure the healthy future of the new republic. Alright, so sadly women are not having as many rights yet, but down the road, it's going to get better. Alright, so now kind of a little back to the country, even though most states had created new constitutions, there was no framework at this time, at least that existed on a national level. So the Second Continental Congress did some national governing, but it really lacked any legal authority to do so, and that's that kind of lack of framework. So states were willing to join in a loose union, but they were reluctant to hand over control to national government. This is the whole states' rights issues. It's like, well, we don't mind having a big government, but don't take away our rights to do things the way we want to do it here in Ohio versus Michigan versus Indiana, Illinois, and so on. And this joining together would be a loose joining, but it would be a confederation of states. And a plan was set forth calling the Articles it was called calling for the Articles of Confederation. And this was kind of the first official government, a perpetual union of states. This confederation of association of states guaranteed each state its sovereignty or freedom and independence. But we're still going to work together. In a sovereign nation definition time, a nation or state that has supreme power over its own affairs. All right. So now fast forwarding a few years to the to 1785, the Land Ordinance of 1785. Now this is kind of how the whole nation is kind of forming together here. So it marked off the land um, of the country, at least that we had so far, into townships and divided each township into 640 acre tracts. And the land could be sold for $1 per acre. I know that seems pretty cheap back then, or now, but not so much back then. And one section of each township was reserved for a school. So we're starting to see some kind of planning overall here. All right, and now this kind of land ordinance as we're moving forward, we're going to talk about the Northwest Ordinance. And this is an area north of the Ohio River to the Great Lakes and west of Pennsylvania to the Mississippi River. 
This act established a system of governing for this area, which also contained the framework for its area to eventually be divided into states. So the basically for the Northwest Ordinance, or what I want you to really know, is a system for governing that the north of the Northwest ter Territory. Ah, sorry, tongue-tied there for a second. All right, now... The problem with this land is states couldn't agree who owned what land. The land to the west. Ownership, meh, we're not really sure what's going on here. So on top of that, that whole war thing, war is still expensive, and the states were asked to help to chip in for the cost of that revolutionary war. But the government had no authority to enforce this. So remember, we have this perpetual union going on, but it's very weak. We have much stronger state rights than a national government. So in response to this kind of weak government, and the government can't enforce anything, Congress started printing money. And this money was called Continentals. And these were not backed by gold or silver. So no one really gave them much value. So it's like, all right, we're printing paper. Well, that's great. Good job. You printed paper. It doesn't mean anything, though. So, by 1784, the nation started to experience a depression, and a depression which we'll get into later on with the Great Depression, spoiler for the 1930s, but a depression is a sharp drop in business activity that accompanies them by rising unemployment during this time. The big cause of this was we were no longer able to sell our goods to the British markets because they're like, hey, you wanted out of this whole thing, you know, where we kind of like own you. So, well, you're not allowed to sell stuff to us anymore. Well, on the flip side, the British were still selling to America and, you know, people wanted to buy American goods, but the British goods were really cheap and the American goods were not so much. Hmm. This sounds oddly like today's time where there's certain goods that are really cheap and other goods that are expensive and we sometimes buy from other countries. <gasps> Modern day China, perhaps? Oh, I think so. So all these problems and Great Depression that are going on, um, you know, left some shortages. And the farmers um, of America had very few markets and little money. And the heavy taxes they had to pay for the war debt hurt them as well. And so if you couldn't pay your taxes, um, the government could seize your land. So... Basically what I'm getting at here, things are not going too well, especially for farmers. And this leads us to 1786 Shays Rebellion. So this guy, Daniel Shays, a former Revolutionary War captain, so he knows military all right, led a rebellious mob from Massachusetts against the government. And they had around 1,200 men, and they tried to seize weapons from an armory, but... When the American military showed up and used artillery to fire on them and killed four farmers, they all scattered. Now, the rebellion really didn't do too much, but it raised doubts against the American government, um, basically saying, look, you can't really uh, enforce your will and the people aren't going to follow you. So this is what's going to lead us to um, you know, make the Articles of Confederation um, so, or I'm sorry, changes to the Articles of Confederation. Um, anyhow, moving on here, September 17th, 1787, the Constitution was completed and then sent to Congress and then to the states for ratification. So some of these changes and stuff were being made in here, and now we're kind of getting everyone to come together. 
Well, many Americans felt that these Articles of Confederation needed improvement. All right? It's just they're not good enough if we want to keep national unity. All right? For example, at a meeting to work out a trade agreement um, failed because only five states sent delegates. Each state had one vote under the Articles of Confederation. Two-thirds of the 13 were needed to amend the Articles. So the response to these kind of setbacks and drawbacks to these Articles of Confederation, congressional leaders issued a call for a constitutional convention, basically saying, look, we need to come together and we need to strengthen the government. Things are just not going well. So this kind of brings us to federal powers versus states' rights. Because do we want to have a strong national government that can get things done? Or do we want to have different states that maybe will argue with one another? So Congress wanted the delegates to revise the Articles of Confederation, but some felt that they needed to be replaced completely. So, for example, one plan, the Virginia Plan, was drafted by James Madison. This plan shifted power away from the states and towards a central government. So strong government, weaker states. Now... This new government, which would coordinate the state's activities for the benefit of the entire nation, is like, look, we know what's good for you. All right. And this kind of laid the groundwork for modern day federalism, which definition is the division of powers between a strong national government and the state governments. Now, James Madison, who got the nickname father of the Constitution. All right. So he said the Virginia plan gave Congress the right to overturn state laws tax the states, and call forth the force of the union against any state failing to fulfill its duties. So basically, he's saying, look, this is a strong government. We want this. So the Virginia plan called for the federal government to be split up into three branches, executive, judicial, legislative. Remember, this is that checks and balances. So even though they have a strong government, they're saying, look, we need to put some checks and balances in here just to make sure. And then the legislature... Remember, you know, the ones who make all these laws and stuff would be bicameral. And that's meaning that it was made of two houses. And this would be based on population. So, and this would be that big debate um, about how some states had bigger population than others did. Um, so all of this was kind of, kind of coming to the forefront. So people said, all right, that Virginia plan, I got a better idea. We'll call it the New Jersey plan. So we have a strong unicameral or one-house legislature. So we're not going to split up the legislature, the ones who make the laws. And in this one, each state would have one vote. And this gave power to the federal government to tax and regulate commerce still, but we're messing with how the laws and how the states vote on things. So eventually, we decide with the Great Compromise. So we're going to have two houses, all right? The upper house, this is the Senate, still around today, each state, regardless of the size, will get an equal voice, two votes. The lower house, the House of Representatives, this will have representatives based on population. So we took the best of both worlds. We took the New Jersey plan, the Virginia plan, and made the Great Compromise. Now, a new issue arose after the Great Compromise. All right, so remember, the lower house is based on population. Well, African-American population um, was affecting the lower house because some states said they had more, a bigger population. But some people opposed slavery on moral grounds and said that this violated liberty, so we can't count 
you know, we can't have slavery. But Souther said, no, 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 slavery for, you know, objectives said, no, 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 we need slavery for political reasons, for population, for, you know, commerce and all these things. Southern states would benefit big time from having a big population count. So there's all this him-hawing going around about um, slavery and what that means for the new country. And so they come up with this thing called the Three-Fifths Compromise. And it was an agreement that African-American population would count as three-fifths of a regular population. So if we have 500 African-Americans living in a southern state, uh, that would count as 300 people because we're only counting three-fifths of, of them. So not the best and... America's got to come a long way at this point because we still have slavery and all this discrimination and arguably we still have a lot of discrimination going on today and it takes different forms in different areas but still have stuff going on today sadly. So moving on to some commerce stuff kind of part of the three first compromise but states clashed over the power of Congress when it came to tariffs or taxes. So they kind of settled on allowing Congress to tax imports, but not exports. The South worried that Congress may tax the importation of slaves. The North was afraid to tackle the issue of slavery because the South might try to withdraw from the Union. Foreshadow, Civil War. So a compromise was formed. Once again, another compromise importation of slaves would end by 1807. Most people thought that if they did that, slavery would just eventually go away on its own. It didn't. All right, so finally, September 17, 1787, that final version of the Constitution that we talked about was completed. The Constitution passed in Congress, and now it was up to the states to ratify. And finally, for approval, nine of the 13 states had approved the new Constitution. Now, from there, you would think, all right, great, we're a country and everything, everyone's, everyone's happy and great. No, we have two different groups now. We have the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists. So the Federalists, they favored ratification. These are typically the merchants, planters, lawyers, and they supported a strong national government. They believed it would provide stability and security against violent political unrest like Shays' Rebellion. And then you have the Anti-Federalists. They did not fully favor the Constitution. They feared a powerful national government. They don't want too much power, and they offered three objections to why this Constitution was not a good thing. One, there was too much secrecy in the creation of the Constitution, and it was against the original ideas. Two, a strong national government would destroy states' rights. Okay? And three, the new government looks a lot like a monarchy. Too much centralized power. And we just got rid of a monarchy, and now you're giving us a new one? So the Anti-Federalists pointed out that the election procedures were undemocratic. Under the Constitution, voters did not directly elect the president, but electors did. And these electors, or delegates selected by the state government... Um, they're the ones who decided who voted. So even though, all right, there's two different types of government um, electing democracy here. We have representative democracy and a direct democracy. Direct democracy would be like if we had 50 people and they all voted and 30% voted, I'm sorry, 30 people voted for one candidate, 20 voted for another. Majority rules, the 30 go 
and that person becomes our new chief head whatever president. But with electors, say that we have 50 people, we divide them up into groups of 10, and each, and each 10 people um, have one person that will vote based on their best interests. And, you know, that person's supposed to vote on their best interests, but it doesn't always work out that way. So the number of electors, these people that are voting on our behalf, was based on the amount of seats the state has in both houses of the of Congress, sorry, so that the Senate and the House of Representatives, the upper and lower house, and this was going to be known as the Electoral College, which is still around today. Now, the Federalists fired back and answered their critics in a series of 85 essays written by John Jay, um, Alexander Hamilton, um, sorry, John Hay, Hay, sorry, Alexander Hamilton and James Madison. 77 of these essays appeared in newspapers throughout the states. These essays were later published in a book, The Federalist Papers, and these laid the groundwork for later political parties down the road. We'll get to those. Um, the same thing was done by the Anti-Federalists. They started publishing essays, and they got published in the Anti-Federalist Papers. All right, so the Constitution at this point... Um, is still a work in progress and still to this day, but it did not contain the Bill of Rights. And I'm going to pick up with another final third podcast talking about the Bill of Rights. So we'll be back in just a moment with the final of the trilogy. <laughs> 